Ahoy, and welcome to another episode of X1039's What's New Now podcast. It's also another episode of our Top 5 Albums series. I'm Crowley, and this one was hard. I'll tell you this right now. Aubrey started this off doing her Top 5 Vinyl albums. Not everybody stuck with that. Some people just did their Top 5 albums. I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. I'm too much of a music nerd. I can't commit to just 5 albums. So we're going back to my Top 5 Vinyl here. I've been collecting since the mid-2000s or so. I got started because uh, a few years prior, discovered this band, The Mountain Goats, which have since been my favorite band for like 20 years at this point. Now, I was a poor-as-hell kid in my early 20s working at Arby's, but I desperately wanted to own some Mountain Goat stuff. And CDs are boring, right? They're lame, they're plastic, there's just something unpleasant about them. So I wanted to pick up some vinyl. Because that seemed like, okay, that's kind of a cool thing here. Plus, he had a lot of stuff he'd released only on these random 7 inches on random labels all over the place. eBay was a good spot back in the day to pick up vinyl. That has kind of changed. It's just turned into another regular Amazon-style store at this point. But back in the day, you could pick up some stuff for some really good prices, find some really rare stuff. And I bought a lot of Mountain Goats albums for like $20 that are 200 plus now. Now, I'll be getting to the Mountain Goats in short order. But before we do that, let's kick it off with my number five album, Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream. As I said, I started collecting vinyl in the mid-2000s. This was a fantastic time to get into vinyl. The very earliest stages of a vinyl comeback had begun then, but it was still a pretty hipster activity. Still about 10 years away from hitting the mainstream before we started seeing vinyl popping up in Walmart, which lame. But because of this, there was so much vinyl available out there and from odd places. So one day, as a big Smashing Pumpkins fan, I still remember getting Siamese Dream, picking it up at a CD store while on a forensics trip, popping that thing into my disc man. And did that sit in my headphones all the way uh, back on the trip? Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness gets a lot of the glory, but man, Siamese Dream is a damn near perfect album. And on a whim, I decided uh, probably about 2005 or so to just start looking around. I went actually to the uh, original label website for Caroline Records that had originally distributed early Smashing Pumpkins material and somehow for sale on their website, they just had first printing copies of Siamese Dream for like retail price. Here, 25 bucks, we'll send you a peaches and cream double vinyl of Siamese Dream. Now, don't get me wrong. I love Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, but let's all be honest about this here. That is a bloated album. Did it really need to be a double album just to satisfy Billy Corgan's ego and aesthetic? Clearly, after the success of Siamese Dream, he felt he had permission to be a little self-indulgent. Which is why Siamese Dream represents such a great record. Because it's perfect Smashing Pumpkins distilled down with all the fat cut out. Kicks off with Cherub Rock, one of the best album openers ever, in my opinion. That drum line to kick it off, man. And then it's just banger after banger, dude. I mean, today, Hummer, Rocket, Disarm, Mayonnaise. Yeah, I skipped over a couple of tracks, but this is probably as close as the Pumpkins ever got to their rumors by Fleetwood Mac, where every song needed to be on the album. The packaging is a little bit bare bones. No extra liner notes slash poster insert. It's just the sleeve and the record. That's all you need for Siamese Dream from the Pumpkins. 
And as a quick bonus record, I also managed to pick up around the same time a copy of their the album two albums later, Adore, on mono. Excellent. Perfect. Dark synth, a, a really underrated album, Adore. Number four, Miles Davis's greatest hits. Oh, Crowley, are you into jazz? Tell me how deep you get into jazz because you picked the most popular jazz artist of all time and his goddamn greatest hits. Let me explain. Since I started listening to jazz in about uh, probably eighth grade, I've done the work to get deeper and deeper into jazz. Let me tell you, big fan of the late 50s period. In fact, the year 1959, what a special year for jazz. That's when Miles Davis's Kind of Blue came out, uh, an album that absolutely changed jazz. Uh, plus Dave Brubeck trios, Take Five. You got Ornette Coleman's The Shape of Jazz to come in there as well. Uh, was it Mingus Ah uh, Um that also came out that year? Great stuff, man. In fact, there's a whole documentary on YouTube about 1959, the year that changed jazz. So I won't lean into it too hard. And allow me to throw out some of my jazz bona fides because I know Miles Davis is the obvious one. How do I pick Miles and not, you know, Hank Mobley, Judd Hip, Stanley Turrentine, Art Blakey, Ahmad Jamal, Bill Evans, Chet Baker, Mingus, Coltrane, Monk? Come on, man. Or the ones I've been into really a lot lately, Red Garland, uh, Kenny Dorham, really love Jerry Mulligan, Sextet's Nightlights. I like the chill jazz a lot. Or more modern artists like Alpha Mist, Robohands, Robert Glasper, Kamazi Washington. You want to get real dark, you can go into Born Under Club of Gore. You want to get wild, you go with like Mammal Hands or The Comet Is Coming. But I throw it back to Miles Davis's Greatest Hits because that was the very first jazz record I ever listened to. I checked it out from the local library. And while I would normally push Kind of Blue on people as an introduction to jazz and Miles in general, if not the quartet of working, relaxing, steaming, and cooking, or the Someday My Prince Will Come album, I've tried really hard to get into Bitches Brew, but I have a much easier time with a tribute to Jack Johnson. And while I would normally avoid a Greatest Hits album, because obvious, and throw on top of that, the Greatest Hits album came out in 1969, and that's before Bitches Brew or Jack Johnson or On the Corner was really only like the first half of Miles Davis's career. It really is a wonderfully sequenced album. It comes across as a highly and carefully curated album from the time that your grandparents used to pronounce the word program as program. And I mean, if you've got a record that's got seven steps to heaven on it, all blues, someday my prince will come, walkin', my funny valentine, ESP, round midnight, and so what? Hot damn, what a selection. And I'll give it an extra bit of special love to Someday My Prince Will Come. Just a perfectly sweet, fun, easy-to-digest jazz track with fantastic solos and Miles really at the height of his vocal expressiveness and his trumpet-playing style. Just, it's wonderful. Plus, as I start leaning into the packaging on some of these vinyl, which is how I made some of my selection, I want to note, if you buy old jazz records, you get a whole-ass essay on the back. It's amazing. Before we move on to the next one, allow me to quote here. This is The Warlord of the Weegians is the title by George Frazier here. I don't mean to be a bastard about this, but at the same time, I have no intention of being agreeable just for the sake of being agreeable. So I'll admit at the outset that, damn right, I don't much care for men who dress badly. It's not that I necessarily hate them or that I'd ever dream of doing anything to abridge their civil liberties. And for that matter, I do have a few friends whose clothes are simply appalling, though that's no problem, for I usually manage to look the other way when I'm with them. But, all the same, I see no point in trying to pretend that I feel very comfortable in the company of the ill-clad. All I'm trying to say, really, 
is that most boutique customers should be lined up before a firing squad at dawn, that there should be a silence to thank God for the existence of people like Miles Davis. Now, number three, soundtrack selection. I couldn't pick just one here. The last decade has led to some really awesome represses of some classic soundtracks. There was a while that the company Mondo was doing some really good work until they got bought out by Funko Pop and everybody got fired. First one I'm going to look at is the Stardew Valley Complete OST official soundtrack, if you didn't know that. This one was put out by Fangamer, which also put out a really excellent Mother 2 Earthbound soundtrack, which I've also got, but I'll save that. We won't talk about that one. This is a four-disc set, one for each season in the game, with so much love and care put into this packaging. Very farm-focused. The cover on each sleeve features a selection of the crops that you can grow in that particular season in the game, with killer original artwork that is much more detailed than the game's pixel aesthetic, while still managing to capture the game's cozy, wholesome vibe. It does get repressed every once in a while, so uh, it gets a little expensive, but if you like the game, I say it's highly worth it. Plus, I'm always impressed when you get a little card with it that describes the mastering process and everything. Uh, This one's got uh, the music you're about to listen to was mastered on an all analog console and cut for vinyl with custom discrete electronics. The lathe is a model VMS 70 made in 1977 that utilizes an SX 74 stereo cutter powered by a customized VG 66 electronics amp slash rack. I don't know what any of that means, but I love it. From there, jumping over to the couple of Twin Peaks soundtracks I got, uh, Mondo slash Death Waltz recording put out some really amazing represses with die cut covers, all color vinyl. One of them is even coffee and cream covered in honor of everybody's favorite FBI agent. Twin Peaks music over the last 10 years or so has inspired a whole subgenre on the internet of both dark jazz and slinky Twin Peaksy style. But as new and fresh as all those subgenres are, going back to the original, if you want to get that smoky, dreamlike character that's so pivotal to the Twin Peaks vibe, you gotta listen to it on vinyl. Another Mondo Death Waltz recording release. We've got the Nightmare on Elm Street box set here. And this thing is a monster, appropriately enough. No Freddy versus Jason on this one, because I don't know if they had the rights or not. And thankfully, they left off the remake from 2010. I think they made this before then, but either way, keep that shit out of here. But wow, this thing is so gorgeous. Uh, Featuring a slipcase with the Freddy Chest of Souls style artwork. The freaky faces with the skin and stuff. And then inside of that, a box uh, covered in Freddy's sweater. And then individual discs for each soundtrack. Uh, Each one with its own brand new hand-painted cover. It very much harkens back to the days when movie posters were a lot more awesome and weren't just punched through an algorithm, but hand-painted by somebody. Every album got a fresh mastering process, and it sounds so good and crisp. The Nightmare soundtracks have always been interesting. Some of the later ones get a little, you know, standard horror movie soundtrack, but when you start off with that first Charles Bernstein album, that iconic piano theme. I'll even give some love to the somewhat cursed Nightmare on Elm Street 2 uh, soundtrack, which I uh, barely used the theme, if at all, and featured like whale songs. But honestly, it kind of works for me. 
A reappearance of Angelo Badalamenti, who did the music for Twin Peaks, also doing the music for Nightmare on Elm Street 3, even though a lot of his music got thrown away because they didn't feel like it fit the Nightmare aesthetic. I've always been of the opinion that the Nightmare movies were elevated horror before there was a lot of elevated horror. Yes, it was in company with Friday the 13th, the Halloween movies, which also better than the slasher movies often get credit for. Uh, But Nightmare on Elm Street was always dreamy, was always at least quasi-intellectual. It was always a lot more than just stab, stab, because the whole point was Freddy Krueger was going into people's dreams. So you had to have at least some semblance of psychology in there. And I feel like that carries through on the soundtracks as well. It's moody, dangerous music. And I should note, this is, I keep saying soundtrack. I mean the scores, actually. Though that said, I also do have a copy of Freddy's Greatest Hits by the Elm Street Group. Which does feature some regular songs that aren't just movie score soundtrack. That thing is goofy and it features Freddy rapping. Anywho, really great box set here. Also comes with a booklet with some essays in it and an obie strip for the nerds out there. Which if you don't know what an obie strip is, that's the thing that goes over the left side of the record. They It gets used a lot in Japan and it's starting to pick up over here in the States because it feels like a more collectory. And finally, as just like a quick honorable mention with that, uh, Mondo and Death Waltz put out some really great John Carpenter soundtracks that I'm a little ashamed I didn't want to highlight here. Uh, but the Prince of Darkness soundtrack, really awesome. Uh, their release of They Live, which has another die cut cover and has the sunglass, it's awesome. Plus some really fantastic Halloween represses. All right, on to number two. Godspeed, you Black Emperor's debut album, F-Sharp, A-Sharp, Infinity. Now, one of my criteria as I was picking out my top five vinyl, because I wanted to make it a little bit easier, I wanted to highlight some really great packaging. It wasn't going to be the only criteria, but damn, can I highlight what Constellation Records did for this Godspeed You Black Emperor album? Constellation Records is really awesome. Canadian post-rock purveyors. They're a relatively small, socially-minded label. So as such, they tend to lean towards sustainable packaging. They get a lot of their materials locally. The sleeve is reverse embossed with the band's name, plus has the cover from the CD version pasted as a postcard on it. Comes with a really cool-looking little art print, plus a goddamn manila envelope with some stuff in it, which I'm realizing as I'm looking at this now, I haven't probably opened in 10 years, which inside features a little piece of paper with album notes, a tiny show flyer with, damn, dude, I don't know if this album came out before or after this this show even happened, uh, but highlighting a show, Vendredi 10th, Septembre, uh, 1999, I can't remember the French for that, but with Godspeed You Black Black Emperor, Emperor, Le Bradford, and Lowe at the Teatro Olympia. Dude, what a show, for $10? And a little fold-out poster that features Godspeed You Black Emperor's quasi-conspiracy theory, semi-schizophrenic styling on it. And the coup de gras, a Canadian penny crushed by a train, just like uh, used on the the other poster in there. The music inside is, of course, incredible and maybe difficult for some people. You might have heard the track Dead Flag Blues. It was used in uh, 28 Days Later. And if you're unfamiliar with post-rock, essentially the idea is uh, for regular rock bands playing regular rock instruments, while generally instrumental, not necessarily a rule, to create works that attempt to rise to the level of artistry of, say, classical music. It's music that is in movements, not songs. It's dark, it's blistering, it's cynical. 
and it's gorgeous. That said, some post-rock bands have been accused of being crescendo core, as in getting all their emotional uh, movement out of just getting faster and louder through a track. But if you like explosions in the sky or do make say think, or if you're already into post-rock or if you want to get into it, I can. I really have to highly recommend Constellation Records. I just really like what they do over there. They're still out, still putting out amazing tracks. Uh, it'll stretch your brain a little bit. They keep a lot of their old stuff in print. It does look like you can get F-sharp, A-sharp, Infinity from the web store, which appreciate that because I think when I ordered my copy, I actually had to send them a piece of mail with a check to get it. And with that, I'm going to highlight one other band that Constellation Records put out a while ago, Hanged Up, which made really awesome, vicious music. It was just a duo who played viola and drums. I got a bad thing for that kind of minimalism. And I'm going to slip in one more honorable mention here. Uh, The band Telegraph Melts, which uh, was on Absolutely Kosher Records back in the day, uh, which has recently seen a revival after folding around 2010. Telegraph Melt obviously got their name uh, from the Jandek album. Another duo, this time a guitar and an electric violin. They only put out one album plus a live album and uh, uh, maybe like a couple of seven inches. But I just wanted to bring it up because I was trying to track down that seven inch many years ago and I found their website and I just emailed the email that was on their website and it was the dude in the band. And he was like, well, I guess we don't really have the web store open anymore, but I have a couple extra copies in my garage. Yeah, I'll send you one. And I was like, oh, holy shit, you're the guy. Would you sign it for me? And he did. So I got that in the collection too. But anyway, to move on to my number one, another band that was on Absolutely Kosher back in the day, even though that is not the album I'm about to talk about here. My number one, easy to guess, my favorite band, The Mountain Goats. And the record I brought in today really hits all the top points of things that I like in vinyl. Rarity. Cool packaging and great music, though that it's an interesting story with this one. I'm already at like 20 minutes here, so I'm not going to tell the whole story of the Mountain Goats. But I'll note in the Mountain Goats' early career, uh, the primary songwriter and really the main guy of the Mountain Goats, John Darnell, wrote primarily fictional songs about characters that he invented and that would often reoccur later on in other songs. Now, he claims also in this early period, there might have been one or two other songs that were semi-autobiographical. We really didn't get a full taste of that until 2004 with the release of We Shall All Be Healed, where John wrote songs about his time living with a bunch of meth heads. At one point, they openly discussed in front of him how much money they could get if they stole his stereo and sold it at a pawn shop. That is a damn fine, and I'll say, even amongst Mountain Goats fans, an underrated record. And in fact, is usually the one I recommend to people if they want to get into the Mountain Goats. But it did really well at the time, and must have buoyed John up into thinking, hey, maybe I should do a little more autobiographical stuff. And that led to the album The Sunset Tree, an album that concerns itself with John's childhood, his fraught relationship with his stepfather, And the general feeling of being a 'er ne'er-do-well teenager trying to figure yourself out. Easily a top five Mountain Goats album, if not one of the best. Featuring this year, which has become an anthem from the Mountain Goats and uh, uh, really got some uh, big viral airplay back at the beginning of COVID. As well as Delauded, a song about a painkiller that's just John's voice over a cello. The song Dance Music, which is about listening to dance music to cover up the sounds of his his, uh, mom and his stepfather fighting. And possibly the most beautiful song I've ever heard in my life. Love, love, love. But that's not the record I have. 
Because see, with the Sunset Tree, John got a wild idea in his head. Since it was such a personal album, he had the idea, what if I got a bunch of blank sleeves and hand decorated with different decoration, each one of these 1,000 sleeves? And if you're going to go this deep into it, you can't just put a regular copy of the record on there. So what I have is called Come Come to the Sunset Tree. And instead of the original album, it's all demos of the songs from the album. It's got a different sequence and uh, a handful of different songs than the original album itself. And it ended up being kind of difficult to get a hold of. At the time, he was mostly just selling them out on tour. You'd have to go show up at the merch table to get one. There were a handful of web stores that were trying to get hold of copies and were able to sell them. And that's where I got mine, sadly. I didn't get it from the merch table or anything. And the reason they were so hard to get a hold of was because John bit off a little bit more than he could chew. Imagine trying to hand decorate a thousand records. So he would work on them in batches. He'd have 20 here at one show. He'd send 30 to this store or whatever. And the rumor amongst Mountain Goats fans is he still has some of these blank sleeves in the record. He has not gotten through all 1,000 and he's still working on them almost 20 years later. Every once in a while, one will pop up on a merch table as just a brand new copy of it. So while they fetch upwards of 500 bucks on Discogs, if you're a truly obsessive Mountain Goats fan uh, and you go to just about every single show, it's not impossible that you might see one just pop up. I would just be first in line. And it should be noted that every record is unique. He does something different for each record. So like my copy has this like blue star minimalist kind of person on the front. And then on the back, another sort of uh, this one's in gray with a red outline. Another sort of twisty stick figure. I don't know, but I love it. And it's mine. And I'm the only one that has one that looks like that. Other copies are known to have bits of comic strip that have been clipped out and pasted to the cover. Or handwritten notes, that sort of thing. I can understand why he would never want to do anything like this again. Because I can't imagine the amount of work this took. But for a band that ends up with fans that feel like they have a really strong personal connection to John and the band, there is something extra special about having a copy of an album that feels like he made it just for you. Isn't the old thing about uh, when people's houses catch on fire, they go for the photo albums first? No, this record is the one I'm going for first if it ever happens to me. All right, I'm like way over my time here. So let me give a couple of really quick honorable mentions here. I've got the Tom Petty Wildflowers box set. Easily, easily my favorite Tom Petty record. And that thing's got seven goddamn LPs in it. Some really pretty represses from Roadrunner Records of some typo negative albums. Uh, I've got Bloody Kisses and October Rust. Then I got a couple of records that, for some reason, I just like them so much. I'll just keep buying new copies of this record whenever it gets re-released. I don't know why I'm stupid. But Emil Rottmeyer's Descend which is some really pretty extra chill synthwave and green by robo hands. Some really spectacular modern jazz that got uh, a real big boost from the YouTube algorithm like seven, eight years ago. Both of those, like it doesn't matter what it is like, Oh, robo hands green is being repressed on green vinyl. All right, here's my $40 again. All right, that's it. There you go. I'm Crowley, and that was my top five vinyl albums, plus a lot of bonus ones in there. Uh, and if you've made it this far into the podcast, I can only assume uh, you're listening so you can figure out what to steal when you break into my house later.
But before you do that, make sure that you subscribe to our podcast and comment on it on social media and smash the button. Crush that bail. If you want to do us a favor, you can talk about our podcast with other people like your parole officer, your your postal service delivery person. But that's it. I need to stop talking here. So next week, I believe our last top five albums podcast, Summer, finally getting her turn. But otherwise, I'm out. Thanks for tuning in. It's X1039's What's New Now.